0: actual total of money he had created and owed to his investors was 65 billion dollars it was the largest ponzi
1: scheme in history so welcome back to another episode of el podcast our guest today is diana henriquez who is an award-winning financial journalist and is known for her expertise in investigative reporting on white-collar crime, market regulation, and corporate governance. She has authored several books, including The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and The Death of Trust, which was adapted into an HBO film starring Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer, which is the topic of today's podcast. Thank you so much, Diana, for joining us.
0: I'm delighted to
1: be here, Jesse. Thank you. And also, Diana does have a new book coming out, which we will talk about later as it's fairly relevant to what's going on in 2023. So, Diana, it's been nearly 15 years since Bernie Madoff's confession to his sons regarding his far-reaching Ponzi scheme. For our audience members who may not be familiar with this case or for those that maybe need a recap, can you just give us a quick summary of events?
0: Sure. Bernie Madoff was a widely respected Wall Street statesman, not real familiar to the retail market, but very familiar to the insiders, the people who ran the Wall Street plumbing that allowed it to work. And in December of 2008, which your listeners will perhaps recall was after two to three months of terrifying financial upheaval in the American market with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the entire auto industry circling the drain in Detroit, money market funds freezing up. It was a time of great turmoil. And in the middle of that great turmoil, on December 11th, Bernie Madoff was arrested. He was arrested on the say-so of his two sons, to whom he had confessed that his entire investment management business, which he had kept... Strictly separate from the legitimate Wall Street business with which they worked, his entire investment management business was a lie. It was, as he put it, one big Ponzi scheme, and I mean big. He guessed when he was confessing to his sons that he had created out of thin air $50 billion in non-existent money that he owed to people. He was short by 15 billion. The actual total of money he had created and owed to his investors was $65 billion. It was the largest Ponzi scheme in history. It was also the first Ponzi scheme that reached literally around the world from Palm Beach to the Persian Gulf, from Buenos Aires to Beijing, from the country clubs of Long Island to the banking suites of Dubai. It was an amazing fraud conducted over at least 13 years. I think it was certainly more like 20 years in complete secrecy by a man who was at the center of the Wall Street regulatory intersection. He advised regulators in Washington. He sat on regulatory roundtables, testified at congressional hearings on market regulation. That's the scandal in a nutshell. He had operated this Ponzi scheme, attracting investors from all around the world, and wound up owing billions and billions of dollars. He was sentenced in June of 2009 to 150 years in prison. He died in prison three years ago before, obviously, he could complete that term. But it was a crime that, in a way, made him the poster child of the excesses that led up to the 2008 meltdown. The recklessness, the indifference to the public welfare, the scale, the complexity— all of that seemed to mirror in his little, in his, you know, circumscribed crime, all of that seemed to mirror what Wall Street had been doing throughout that decade. The crime took on a life of its own in the public mind, as you can see by the outsized sentencing, and stands today still as an extremely educational fraud for people to understand and know about.
1: In the epilogue of your book, you kind of ask two main questions, which is one, who else knew of this Ponzi scheme? Secondly, when did it start? It seems like his right hand man, Frank, is it De- De Pascali? Is that how you pronounce it? It seems like he maybe had a Freudian slip in court and said going back to the 80s, it seemed like Bernie Madoff was saying the 90s but he had motivation to lie and plus why would you trust a a liar you can go back and get assets if if he would have been like oh yeah it started in say the 70s but it seems like it was probably way longer than the 90s
0: i agree with that with bernie now dead and having taken the nitty-gritty details of this fraud to his grave with him we'll never know for sure but here's my thinking on it and i lay it out in my book, The Wizard of Lies, it's circumstantial. I'll admit that. First of all, the scale of the fraud as it existed on the date Bernie admits it's it had started, which was 1993, was far too large to have accumulated in just that that year. He owed $440 million to investors at that time. That didn't happen in that calendar year. Trust me, not in those days. That would have made him by far one of the largest money managers in the country at the time. Another data point, the investment strategy that Badoff claimed he was using, while it was extremely complex and he made it sound even more complex because that kept questioners at bay, was actually not unique. There was a small mutual fund called the Gateway Fund that at the time, from the late 70s into the early 80s and mid 80s had been pursuing a very similar strategy with good results up until 1986, 87, 88. There was the big market crash in 87, which I explored in my book, of First Class Catastrophe. And with that crash, the market became too unstable to accommodate this strategy anymore. Now, we don't know what was happening to Bernie's money to Bernie's accounts but we do know I was able to reconstruct what happened to that mutual fund and its investment strategy fell apart it became unworkable it began to lose money it became highly volatile and the goal of the strategy was to be consistent so the mutual fund abandoned that strategy right around the mid to late 80s Bernie didn't And that's why I think at that point, the markets stopped cooperating with the strategy and Bernie started cheating so that he could make it look like the strategy was continuing. Based on circumstantial evidence, date the beginning of the fraud to around the 87 crash. Bernie also told me in one of my prison interviews, a little tidbit which doesn't quite sync with what he later said in court, He said that some of his biggest investors, these were the very early, big, very wealthy elderly men who kind of financed his start. He said, well, that the 87 crash had frightened them, had scared them. They'd been sailing along on this long bull market that had begun in 1982. They thought it was just minting money. You put money in the market, it grows, you get rich. And the 87 crash, which was a pretty scary crash, as you'll see from that book, scared them. And they started to want to pull money out of their accounts with Bernie. And he claimed that the strategy couldn't accommodate that kind of instant liquidity. He couldn't give them their money back immediately. And so he temporarily, I'm putting little air quotes around that, he temporarily borrowed money to be able to pay these frightened investors back. Well, when did that happen? Right after the 87 crash. So that's why I think it was at least the 86, 87, 88. We don't know exactly where along that spectrum, but almost certainly by 88, the year after the crash, it took two years for the 1987 crash to work its way out of our stock market. I mean, that Popular images, it was a crash with no consequences. It happened, it was over, and we all sailed on. In fact, there were two years of really scary markets all through 88 and into 89, and another little mini crash in October of 1989. So I think that's the period when Bernie's big investors got frightened, wanted to withdraw money, and he accommodated
1: them by stealing. In your book, The Wizard of Lies, you mentioned that Bernie Madoff took a loan from his father-in-law in in 1962 to basically cover losses that he had. It seems like even in 1962, it's possible he was already running a a Ponzi scheme. So do you think that Those losses covered it, and then he was able to bounce back. Jesse,
0: I don't think we can rule out that possibility. The episode in 1962, which I describe in my book, which I never knew about until Bernie told me about it in in our first prison interview. He had been managing a handful of accounts, and he guessed four dozen clients for whom he was managing money. Now, he was very young at this point. He was in his early 20s. And his little Wall Street firm was two years old. So this is very early in the Bernie Madoff story. But in May of 1962, there was a swift and sudden market crash. It was like an air pocket crash. It was related to some politics involving steel prices and President Kennedy at the time. The market, which had gotten very overheated, just crashed and burned in one of the first casualties were some of the highly speculative little stocks that Bernie had been investing his clients' money in. Now, two problems with that. These clients were elderly, conservative, modest investors. He had no business under the regulations that existed at the time and today had no business investing them in such reckless stocks, such speculative stocks. So the suitability rule that governed the market at the time under the SEC said wrong choice, wrong investments for those clients. And then they crash and burn, every one of them worthless, virtually worthless by the end of that crash. So what does Bernie do? He borrowed money from his father-in-law under the pretense of needing to recapitalize his firm after these market losses and everybody knew that the market was in turmoil. They'd seen it on the front pages of the newspaper. So he borrowed the money from his father-in-law and used it to, quote, buy back the stocks from his client's account at par, at what they had paid for them. So in their account statements, what did they see? They saw a young money manager who had navigated their accounts through the worst week in the stock market since 1929. That's how bad it was. And they hadn't lost a nickel. So he's the boy genius, right? He covered up the fact that he had lost their money. Now, that giving them real money back to pay back the money he had lost for them is the opposite of a Ponzi scheme, obviously. But it is a lie nevertheless, he was lying to his investors about what had happened. Instead of going to them and saying, you know, I took a big risk with your money. Shouldn't have done it. The market's turned against us and it's all gone. And I'm sorry. Didn't say that. He said, you're fine. We did fine in this market. Just trust me. And it was on that lie, really, that his reputation as this market genius, this Wall Street wizard, began to grow. So I asked him when he described this story to me, just about how he had done this, because he admitted that it was wrong to have invested in those stocks for those investors. And so he felt like he had to, as a, (laughs) excuse this term, moral obligation, hate to apply that to Bernie Madoff, but as a moral obligation, he felt he had to pay them back. And I said, well, they must have been so grateful. Well, he didn't actually tell them he'd done it, he said. So, why not? They wouldn't have understood. They were unsophisticated. They wouldn't have understood what I was doing. Bottom line, he put the money back in their accounts and lied about it. And on that foundation grew this reputation of this magical money manager. So, Obviously, this was from the beginning, a man who was more comfortable living with himself as a liar than living with himself as a failure. He could not admit to them that he had failed and lost their money. So he lied about it. That being our starting position, Jesse, uh, who knows how many times he gyrated across the line lost money, stole money to make it back, and then the market helps him out, bails him out. Because remember, these were years of very strong stock markets. He could have crossed the line a dozen times without that, and we never knew it because he always made the money back. And probably, if that's the case, that's what he thought he was going to be able to do this time as well. But by that time, by the late 80s, The scale of investments in Madoff accounts had just started to take off. Hedge funds had become something that got talked about at every backyard barbecue. Everybody had to have a hedge fund. Hedge funds were pouring money in to funds that were invested with Bernie Madoff. And almost overnight, he wasn't handling hundreds of millions of dollars. He was handling billions of dollars. And he could just never get back. The market could never make him enough money to pay back what he was borrowed, what he had stolen from other accounts. So it's possible, yes, that Frank Pascali was right and that the continuous cheating had begun in the 80s, in the 80s. I think that's likely. It's also possible it had begun well before. As you know, prosecutors in the trial of five employees who were convicted for their role in sustaining this fraud argued that there had been cheating as early as 1978. So we don't know, and with him gone now, we'll never know, but I think that's where the smart, educated guesses are.
1: So you met Bernie Madoff multiple times in prison. How many times did you meet him, and what were your impressions of him while you were having these interviews?
0: Well, I had known Bernie Madoff for more than a dozen years before he was arrested. I knew Bernie before anybody had heard of Bernie. He was a trailblazing innovator on Wall Street. And as a financial writer when I was at Barron's Magazine in the mid-'80s, Madoff pioneered a practice called after-hours trading. He and his trading desk and a, two other small firms that competed with him began the practice of trading New York Stock Exchange stocks after the NYSE closed. This was back in the quaint days when markets actually did close. And he was allowed by the regulations of the time to trade NYSE stocks uh, around the time zones until the Big Board opened again the next morning, and that's what he did. He made a business, a very profitable business, trading New York Stock Exchange stocks all through the night, around the globe, into the next morning until the NYSE opened. Well, if you're a reporter like me, news breaks always after the market closes, right? That was the practice back then. Um, You know, there'll be some big announcement that would affect the oil stocks the outbreak of war in the Persian Gulf, for example. My editor says, Diana, what's happening with the oil stocks? Well, the stocks are not trading publicly anywhere at that moment. I call Bernie. What's happening with the oil stocks? And his trading desk knows because they're trading oil stocks in Japan, in Frankfurt, all around the globe, still trading them actively. And they could tell me. So Bernie was on the Rolodex, on the telephone list of every market reporter I knew, because that's how you got after-hours information, not just about individual stocks, if there was news about a CEO leaving, but about whole sectors like the oil sector and about the overall market itself. So Bernie had kind of endeared himself, without meaning to, to reporters like me. He was a source of valuable information that allowed you to, to write stories on deadline for the next day's news that would be valid and credible. And then, as the markets themselves began to change in the early 90s, the New York Stock Exchange transformed itself into a for-profit operation. The Nasdaq market was not far behind. Being a for-profit business greatly changed the governance challenges and the policing challenges of the markets, There was a whole series, season after season, of academic conferences, regulatory roundtables, dealing with that issue of how the markets were changing. And at every one of them, there is Bernie Madoff on the panel, in the audience, as the keynote speaker. His brother, Peter Madoff, who was the technological guru of the firm, would be at the ancillary panels on automation and how it was changing these marketplaces. So I got to know him in that context, interviewed him several times about that process and other innovations that he was driving into the market. Payment for order flow was one of the most controversial things he ever did, where he would rebate to major brokerage firms a penny per share if they would send their orders to him. Instead of to the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. And there was huge uproar over that. He was investigated. The regulators found that investors were getting as good or better a deal, a better price from him, and couldn't therefore ban the process. So he had been, if you were covering the plumbing of Wall Street, to call it that, the infrastructure. Of the stock market. You knew Bernie Madoff from the mid-80s on. He was an important innovator, an important influencer of how the market's rules were written, and he had a gift for being able to explain them in ways that, you know, well, neophytes like me could understand. So when the little headline came into my inbox from the Associated Press that December day, saying that Bernie Madoff had been arrested for securities fraud, it just, all the bells and whistles and alarms in my head went off because I knew who he was. He had served three terms as the chairman of NASDAQ. Although he wasn't a household name for anybody, my editor had never heard of him. So when I rushed up, breathing heavily, saying, Bernie Madoff's been arrested, it was like, so... (laughs) (laughs) I had to do a quick little run through about this is really important. Believe me, trust me, this is really important. And indeed it was. So the Bernie I knew out in the wild, the Bernie I knew in the world that he was, whom I describe as the Madoff that Bernie was proud of being, that was the Dr. Jekyll to the Mr. Hyde that he had hidden for so many years. I knew that Bernie. And so when I met him in prison, I had two prison interviews with him, two plus hours apiece. And then we corresponded for years through the prison email system and letters. Now those were all, must be said, monitored by prison authorities. They were censored the prison authority read everything I wrote him and everything he wrote back to me. So, you know, Bernie had a lot of secrets to keep, and he wasn't going to be sharing them in these emails and letters with me. I was aware of that. But it did allow me at least to push further into his thinking to try to understand more about what he was doing. When I first met him, the Bernie I saw in prison was very much like the Bernie I had known on Wall Street, dapper, crisply tailored in his prison uniform, which was perfectly ironed and the brass belt buckle polished up. He'd always been a dandy on the street and he was a dandy in his prison uniform. Same calm, explanatory voice. Same assurance, confidence, that if you just let him explain it to you, you'd understand. In many ways, it was still the Bernie... That I had known on the street. Rationales about what he had done. And of course the obligatory remorse over what he'd done. The second time I interviewed him. After months of emails about details of the fraud that I was trying to clear up. My book was going to press. And the second interview was just weeks before the book manuscript locked up. So, I had lots of last minute things I needed to know. And it was also two months after Bernie's son, Mark, had committed suicide. Mark, his son, Mark, committed suicide on the second anniversary of his father's arrest. The message was as clear as a bell to everybody. He just felt his life had been ruined by his father's crime, that no one would hire him. He could never lift his head again. No one would ever believe he hadn't known about the fraud, although I am absolutely convinced he did not. There is no evidence that Madoff's sons or wife played any role or knew anything about this fraud. When I saw Bernie on that occasion in prison, he was a wreck. He had lost, oh, I guess 20 pounds. His clothes hung on him. He had the belt tightened so tight to hold his trousers up, that there was like a a foot and a half length of belt hanging down. One of the buttons on his shirt was unbuttoned. His collar was ironed up at a a screwy angle. He'd missed a spot shaving. He was a wreck. He wouldn't talk about Mark, uh, if I tried to bring it up, even when I expressed my condolences to him, as you would to any human being who had lost his son. He just brushed it off just absolutely refused to confront it so the two bernie madoffs the madoff that was convinced even in prison that he had everything under control and the madoff who saw life spinning out of control um emblematic of the first madoff was a conversation i had a, a, an exchange we had in that interview you know, every writer who's trying to write vivid narrative history wants those scenes, those, and you know, be able to create that image of, oh, when did this happen? Now, I wanted to know from Bernie, when did you first realize that that you were going to have to steal? When did you first realize that you were going to have to cross that line between honesty and dishonesty? Can you create that moment for me? Tell me about how that happened and he looked at me kind of blankly and said well um uh, uh, no um yeah you know, we couldn't nothing particularly came to mind that's one of the reasons i think he'd crossed that line many times before so i said okay we moved on i said well when did you at, at, at least when did you first realize your fraud was going to fail and I was thinking, as I explained in the book of Thanksgiving weekend 2008, when representatives of Banco Santander from Spain visited him in New York and told him that they were going to make a major withdrawal from their accounts. And he knew that would take most of the money he had left and that any further withdrawals, the checks would bounce. So I thought he was going to describe that little scene for me. But no, I said, well, when did you know that you're fraud was going to fail he said oh it didn't fail and uh, you know i'm doing one of these whoa <laughs> hold it we're in prison bernie um i think it failed he said no it didn't, no no it did no he didn't fail he said he could have kept it going there were lots of we rattled off some boldface names there were lots of people who still wanted to invest with me uh, i could have kept it going but i just got tired of the tap dance of raising new money and decided to let it stop he it didn't fail he decided to shut it down so even in that first prison interview this is a man with the delusion that he is utterly in control of what is happening to him the second interview was a man who had lost that delusion and hadn't found anything to replace it with yet as time went by, and I stayed in touch with him, and we had many telephone conversations, particularly after HBO purchased the book and started working on the adaptation, the screenwriters would occasionally throw questions to me that I needed Bertie's input to answer to be sure we had them correct. And so we were in touch all through 2015, 2014 and 2015, and I saw his attitude... Just hardened and become more embittered, and his contempt for his victims. There's no other word for it. His, they made plenty of money off me. He said they should be grateful. He said, and I'm just you know holding my head and said, Bernie, one of his investors committed suicide out of shame for having put his clients in this mess. People sold family homes that they could no longer afford. Their kids dropped out of college that they could no longer afford. Lives had been turned upside down, damaged, even ended because of his crime. And he's saying, well, they should be grateful to me. They made a lot of money with me before it all fell apart. And we jousted a bit about that. And that was really the last phone call I had with him. He was... Frustrated that he couldn't persuade me of his points of view and eventually removed me from his email list at the prison so I could no longer communicate with him except by letter. That's sort of the arc he went through from the dapper Wall Street guy who happens to be in prison and is very remorseful for what he did and hopes that people will forgive him to this bitter, harsh unremorseful figure in prison which is the last bernie i knew
1: you talk a lot about ethics in your book and with the movie i'm not sure how much input you had in the movie but it seems as if they want you to feel bad for bernie madoff and his family ruth and his two children that like you mentioned one committed suicide and the other one died of uh, of cancer but you know a lot of the investors thought that he was doing something illegal, but they thought that he was front running. So they had no problem investing with a guy that they thought was essentially a fraud to begin with, except that he was the one defrauding them. And like you're talking about there's a lot of small investors that were just basically investing with another brokerage firm and then they were just essentially a feeder. So they had no idea what was going on. But like the big investors literally thought that he was and the SEC what invested him five times for front running it's hard to feel bad for us, the big investors that lost money when they thought that they were actually making money through illegal activities. It also speaks larger about just how the whole economic system and the financial system is set up. Where he's running these shell companies through, in- he had a brokerage firm in London, which was what very deregulated back in what the 70s or so. And so he was able to continue the scheme because he was able to offshore it.
0: Well, the, the London affiliate was set up in another of his pioneering ventures as a Wall Street innovator to trade what were called then American Depository Receipts, ADRs. Back before the markets became as global as they are today, that was the only way American investors could invest in foreign companies, was through ADR shares that were listed here. And Bernie pioneered that market as well, which is now, I mean, it, Eventually, uh, dual listings, cross-border listings became allowed, but in those days it wasn't. So he actually gave Americans their first opportunity to invest in Samsung, in Japanese markets, in Bering Brothers, in uh, Jaguar. So that was the genesis of the London operation. He actually kept the London operation tied to the legitimate side of his business. But let me go back to your characterization of the investor community here, because I think it's critical, Jesse. You've really put your finger on one of the key and really chronic issues that arise with Ponzi schemes. Ponzi schemes are a very old crime, and they date back to the 1800s when they were called Peter to Paul schemes. Because that's that's the crime. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're not investing anybody's money and making new money. You're just taking money from Peter and using it to pay the profits you'd promised to Paul. In those schemes, in the very early days, by which I mean the turn of the 20th century days, the victims were always being promised... Pie in the sky returns. Get rich in thirty days. And then the Charles Ponzi, who gave his name to this scheme in 1920 in Boston, uh, was you know promising 50 percent returns a month. I mean, it was ludicrous to a sensible, knowledgeable investor, and it tended to draw in unsophisticated, naive investors who were greedy and who thought that they could get rich overnight. They wanted something for nothing. Pie in the sky. So that stereotype of the Ponzi scheme investor unfortunately endured long after it was obsolete. The investors in Madoff's scheme through various feeder funds, and as you noted, many of them didn't even know they were invested with Madoff at all. They were invested in a fund that was invested with the fund that was invested with Madoff. They never knew. But you have to fast forward and look at the evolution of Ponzi schemes, which Madoff helped drive, by the way. I argue that they ought to be called Madoff schemes now, not Ponzi schemes, because he so changed the dynamics of a Ponzi scheme. He never promised pie in the sky. He promised you a little bit more than you could get maybe in the market. But one of his investors, an accountant, charted how much he could have made if he'd invested in the Magellan Fund at Fidelity, instead of with Bernie Madoff, he'd have made more money with Magellan. He didn't invest with Madoff because he was greedy. He invested with Madoff, as did millions, because he seemed safe. They weren't greedy. They were frightened. They wanted a conservative, consistent, trustworthy management of their money in a turbulent, yes, you know, exuberant, but a turbulent, scary, complicated market that they didn't understand anymore. So the idea that we can blame the victims for being greedy, they should have known better, it was too good to be true, not true in the Madoff story, and not true in most modern Ponzi schemes now. There's a wonderful fraud analyst whose quote I've used a thousand times, Pat Huddleston, and he said after the Madoff case broke, And we saw its parameters. He said, if it sounds too good to be true, you're dealing with an amateur. Bernie wasn't an amateur. He was a pro. He knew not to make it sound too good to be true because his sophisticated customers would see through that. He made it sound just good enough to be attractive and just complicated enough to deter you from asking too many questions. That was his magic formula. Handsome, but not outlandish returns, but complex strategies that would deter too much investigation. The largest portion of Madoff investors, that's what they saw. That's what they were buying. Consistent, non-volatile returns from a master money manager. Now, there was, particularly in Europe, A smaller subset of professional investors, hedge fund managers, private bank trust managers, who did suspect that Bernie was front-running, which for your listeners simply is a form of insider trading. Bernie, as a major market trading desk, he could see the flow of orders that was coming in to his desk before they were executed. Say he sees 20 orders coming in from all across the country to buy Apple stock. And he knows that once he fills all those orders, what's going to happen? Big demand for Apple stock coming in. Apple stock's price is going to rise. So why not just buy a few thousand shares of Apple first, then fill all those orders, buy for this outsized customers, watch the price rise, and then sell those shares that he had secretly bought. That's called front-running. It's a great way to make money. It's almost a risk-free way to make money. It's also against the law. But it. lots of supposedly sophisticated hedge fund guys, particularly in Europe, I, I interviewed one of them, an Italian money manager. That's what they thought he might be doing. And they were perfectly okay with that. You know, if, if, fine, yeah, it's a little illegal, but, you know, the worst could happen. He gets caught and they have to find another money manager. That was how they looked at it. But that was one subset of investors. Don't let that draw your attention away from the vast majority of Madoff investors who had no clue he was doing anything wrong, believed he was a prince of Wall Street, Believed he was trustworthy and honest. Let me tell you, just if I I could, just a quick little story about why it didn't, why it made sense to trust Bernie Madoff, if you will, why investors were not crazy to trust Bernie. In the late 1990s, the Justice Department discovered that there was a massive price fixing scandal in NASDAQ stocks. Almost three dozen firms across the street, every big name you've ever heard of, some of them no longer with us, like Prudential Base or others that were trading NASDAQ stocks, their trading desks were conspiring with one another to keep the gap between what you bought it at and what you sold it at, at a fixed level, a quarter of a point. That guaranteed that they would make at least a quarter of a point on every share they sold and it kept their profits up. Justice Department found out about this through some magical research that was done at Vanderbilt University. They brought the lawsuits. Settlements were entered into nearly a billion dollars in money was paid by the firms that had been fixing these prices. It was a huge scandal, the NASDAQ price-fixing scandal. Who was not sued? Who was absent from the list of defendants? Oh, only one of the largest NASDAQ traders on the street, Bernie Madoff. Neither the private litigators nor the Justice Department could find a shred of evidence that suggested that Bernie Madoff had been part of this massive, long-running, price-fixing scandal. Now, in hindsight, Jesse, we can say, well, of course not. He didn't want investigators coming around and stumbling across the Ponzi scheme, he was running down the stairs, right? That would have been a good reason to be honest, right? But if you're on the outside and you don't know about the Ponzi scheme downstairs, you could be forgiven for thinking that Bernie Madoff is the only honest NASDAQ trader on Wall Street. He was the one guy that didn't play this crooked game. So that's why I say this was not the Ponzi scheme of old where you can sort of shrug off and say, well, I never would have fallen for that because it's pie in the sky. It sounded too good to be true. They should have known better. They should have protected themselves. That's not what the facts actually showed in this case.
1: It's, it's always 2020. So we're in 2023. This Bernie Madoff confession was December of 2008. So this is kind of the height of the recession in 08, And it seems as if they made Bernie Madoff, the poster child for all the financial ills of wall street even though there's so much more going on he got 150 years in prison if we're looking say recently you have elizabeth holmes of theranos who defrauded investors out of a billion dollars but she also was messing with blood tests one of her people's health yes people's health, health right one of her lead scientist committed suicide and she got 11 years and she's still not even in jail even though sonny balwan he went to jail we had the scandal with sam bakeman freed at ftx which i believe was close to 10 billion dollars and even before the scandal with bernie madoff you had enron which was even bigger that was 75 billion dollars and i believe if you adjust for inflation it's somewhere around 125 billion And Jeff Skilling only got 24 years, and I believe he was out in like less than 20, and he currently owns another business now. And then uh, Frank Del Pasco, was, I believe, was up looking at maybe 125 years, but he actually passed away of of, uh, lung cancer before he was ever sentenced. But he would have done over 100 years as well. Talking about Sam Brakeman-Fried, I mean, he's staying at his parents' mansion right now. And the same thing with Elizabeth Holmes. We've had a lot of fraud now, but it's looked on quite a bit differently. And we had Matt Stoller on recently talking about the robber baron age, the Gilded Age. He says there never was such a thing except for right now. He says this is the first Gilded Age. And this kind of ties into your your new book.
0: I love that historical context you gave. I will just add that light sentences for white-collar crime was the rule, not the exception Bernie Madoff and Frank D. Piscali were the exceptions. Sentences like that, these these largely symbolic, extremely harsh sentences, were shocking and unprecedented. When Bernie went to court to plead guilty, I am certain that his, his lawyer actually argued for a very light sentence, and I'm certain that Bernie, based on history thought 10 years 11 years maybe like Elizabeth Holmes maybe that's what he'd get he was nearly 70 so that wasn't a great prospect maybe they could get it down to seven or eight and that would not have been at all out of line with white collar sentencing through my career I covered this stuff for nearly 50 years and you just never saw sentences like that white collar crime was always kind of a pat on the wrist kind of sentencing, even the serious ones like Enron, compared to violent crimes or other forms of crime. So Madoff was the anomaly in that sentencing pattern. The cases that you've cited are returning to the norm. They're actually a little more severe than I saw during most of my career covering white collar crime. So we haven't relapsed all the way back down to the, you know, four months probation so the guy can go back to his country club. But Bernie Madoff did not set a new standard in harsh sentencing for white-collar criminals. Maybe he should have, but he didn't. I think it's important for people to understand and for judges, really, to understand that white-collar crime can be as vicious, as damaging as destructive of human life and happiness as a mugging in the parking lot. You know the old cliche about, I don't steal with a pistol, I steal with a fountain pen. And you can still create just as much damage. Going back to the robber baron days, the new book that I have coming out in September, which is called Taming the Street, looks at the world of the markets in the 1920s, the great jazz age, the roaring 20s. In our imagination, it was a booming stock market. I mean, just kind of like the the 80s, everybody making money hand over fist. That's not what it really was. It was basically a crime scene from one end of the decade to the other. It was a period of time when ruthless practices went unregulated, when the, the... Might made right in the stock market. The big money manipulated prices. The little money was the sucker at the table. And that was the world that Franklin Roosevelt came of age with. So my book, Taming the Street, the subtitle is The old guard, the New Deal, and FDR's fight to regulate American capitalism, when he came into office in March of 1933, he undertook an unprecedented campaign to enact the financial reforms that he believed were necessary to make our markets safer for the little guys, for ordinary Americans. To a large extent, and to an amazing extent, he succeeded. He enacted the FDIC so that people could safely invest in banks. Until then, if your bank failed, you lost all your money. And as we've seen in the bank failure panics of the last several months, which I will admit, I kind of roll my eyes and say, you think this is a bank panic? Let me take you back to 1932. You want to see a bank panic. There was no FDIC then. So th- th- that we we could safely invest. Boom." Ordinary people like us could safely invest. And when we had enough, he regulated the mutual fund industry so that we could safely get diversification and liquidity in a stock market investment. And if we made a little bit more money there, we could safely invest in the market at large because he regulated it too. And he enacted laws against manipulating prices, against acting in collusion, trading on inside information, all the ways that the big guys had been ripping off the little guys for more than a decade. He stepped in to change that. I argue in the book that this was the foundation of the growth of the American middle class. Roosevelt opened the financial markets to little people in ways that allowed them to safely... And confidently invest. So the world before the New Deal was different from today in that there were almost no prosecutions for financial fraud. The world after the New Deal, with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, set up to police the street, to be the cop on Wall Street, you began to see prosecutions for those crimes. As History rolled forward, and the wealthy regained a great deal of power. You began to see the effectiveness of that regulation waned, and the severity of those sentences shrink. Now, we're at a point where we really do need to get back to the New Deal roots, and to pick up that old-time religion again and start applying market regulation the way FDR did, But first, I think we need to know that that's our heritage. FDR handed us a package of financial reforms that transformed this country. When I hear politicians today saying, oh, we need to deregulate, we need to deregulate, I just want to throw up, frankly, Jesse. To me, it's why would you throw away the, you know, fix them, make them better. Yes, we've got some stupid rules. Fix them. Yes, we've got some incompetent people administering those rules. Get rid of them. Bring better people in. But don't throw away the whole idea of financial regulation because it changed this country's history.
1: In your book, The Wizard of Lies, you wrote, if the Madoff story proves nothing else, it proves that regulators are living in a dream world, one that is very different from the dream world populated by investors, This reminds me of when you were talking about in the book where these SEC lawyers would talk to Bernie Madoff and he would just use jargon and they had no idea what he's even talking about. There's so much money in the world of finance, the best and brightest are going to go into finance. You're not going to go in to be a regulator. And then we see right now where you have people that go from government to industry and vice versa. And it's really hard to actually regulate These big banks, especially when you can just offshore this stuff. You can have a bank account in Luxembourg or you can have a bank account in the Cayman Islands. I mean, we live in Puerto Rico, which is a tax haven, and everyone that has a yacht and they just cruise over to BVI, the British Virgin Islands. So that's another tax haven. And then you go to the Cayman Islands or you go to Liechtenstein or they all take trips to Monaco. They're just playing this globalized financial game. The average person doesn't have access to any of these quote unquote special purpose vehicles or whatever. What is the lesson of Bernie Madoff and the lesson of uh, your new book of The New Deal and FDR?
0: You're right that the globalization of finance has raised challenges for regulators that FDR could barely have dreamed of. In FDR's day, each nation was pretty much its self-contained market, although the Great Depression was a global depression, but the reactions to it were very piecemeal and very isolated with each nation. And after World War II, and especially after the rebirth of the German and the Japanese economies, after the damage of World War II, we became a global economy. The U.S. has been slow to lead the kind of diplomatic efforts that need to be taken to build global rule books, that everybody will sign on with. It's always a temptation to join the race to the bottom, to be the tax haven that everybody wants to come and do business with because nobody else will let them do those games. The only way out of that is diplomatic negotiations with meaningful sanctions. That's market regulation on a global scale. And what we we need today is Franklin Roosevelt for that effort. We need somebody willing to take on the effort of bringing at least the G7, but even more importantly, all of the developed world where financial markets are interconnected, to bring them to the table, sit down and decide what the rules are going to be with respect to dodging taxes, with respect to insider trading, with respect to transparency of ownership, all of these shell companies behind which you can hide. I would say the top three items on the agenda I would set for this gathering, that's a diplomatic challenge for the future that, frankly, is going to require far more political unity than we have at our disposal in this country right now. Because these will be diplomatic treaties that will have to be approved by the Senate. These will be binding commitments to other nations. But absent that, I mean, on the not to sound too gloom and doomish here. If we get back to first principles that FDR handed us, you talked about the SEC not getting the brightest and best. Well, why not? They got the brightest and best under FDR. One of the reasons they did is that agency's head had walk-in privileges at the Oval Office. The President of the United States thought it was one of the most important agencies he had ever created. and the people who ran it, Joe Kennedy, the first, the father of President John Kennedy, a Harvard law professor named Jim Landis, and then William O. Douglas, who became one of the longest serving Supreme Court justices in US history, those three men could walk into Roosevelt's office without an appointment and raise a problem with them and know that the president would back them. Didn't matter how powerful. The Wall Street people pushing back were the SEC. The president had the SEC's back. We don't have that today. We don't have regulatory agencies that have that kind of executive power in their corner. We don't have agencies that had the kind of budgets that FDR was made sure his new agency, the SEC, had. The SEC is a profit center for the U.S. government. It brings in more money than Congress will let it spend. If it could keep the money it brought in in fees and registration expenses and so forth, if it could keep the money it brought in, it could hire the biggest, the brightest, and the best. It could hang on to its seasoned lawyers who had handled a lot of cases. One of the frustrations of the Madoff story for me was the last round of inept SEC investigations of Bernie Madoff, one of the figures on that three-person team had been out of law school for 19 months. None of them had ever investigated a Ponzi scheme before in their lives. So you've got inexperienced, unseasoned people tackling the likes of Bernie Madoff. So the structure is there, Jesse. We've populated it with nincompoops. We can populate it with competent, authoritative, respected people and get a better outcome.
1: I wanted to and switch topics a little bit to sociopath that's one of the words that you kind of hear people say about bernie madoff and then i really enjoyed this quote from your book you say from your your book the wizard of lies we all delude ourselves about ourselves every single day i'm not going to get cancer even though i smoke i can drive better after a few drinks i'll pay that credit card off next month Most of us are born knowing how to tell lies, and by definition, we cannot see our own blind spots. When you read articles about Bernie Madoff, they all basically say he's a sociopath. He did have a legit market-making business, and it seems like he got into financial trouble. Maybe he wasn't running a Ponzi scheme since 1962. He took the check from his father-in-law, made everything whole, and thought that he could just do that again. He had this lifestyle. He had these friends. He's donating a lot of money to philanthropy. His friends are donating money to philanthropy. So it's it kind of got like stuck in this spot where he thought maybe, like, hey, I'll just do this. And then, of course, the whole 2008 financial crash, just everyone got wiped out. People just throw that term around willy-nilly. Like, is Elizabeth Holmes? People say that about Elizabeth Holmes. People say that about Sam Bakeman Freed. I agree with you
0: that sociopath isn't a particularly explanatory term. It doesn't explain a lot. I mean, I, I know people who think that Steve Jobs was a sociopath. And based on the evidence, he probably was. If you define sociopath as someone who is incapable of empathizing and respecting the feelings of and even the mere existence of other people, that, then, yeah, I mean, Steve Jobs never grow within the speed limit. He didn't think any of the traffic rules applied to him, but he didn't run a Ponzi scheme. Madoff might have been a sociopath, but that didn't mean he had to be a criminal sociopath. What was it that pushed him in that direction? The jury will always be out a little bit on whether Madoff was clinically a sociopath, which is to say he was unable to feel the feelings of other people. He did not see anybody as important as he was. He was the most important person in the world. The only caveat to that is how he felt about his family. I have actually talked with psychiatrists who come down on both sides of that, that he didn't actually have genuine affection and love and concern for these other people who were his family. He merely needed their adulation, he needed their love and admiration to feed his own ego. That, that So he didn't love them back. He needed their admiration. That obviously supports the argument that he never let them know he was a crook, because that would have undermined that flow of adulation and respect that they poured into him. If that's the case, then I don't think there's any argument that he was sociopathic in his relationships with other people. But I still don't think we know why criminally sociopathic. As you said, maybe opportunistic. Maybe it was a quirk of fate that he got backed into a corner and he couldn't get out again. And um, someone who really cared about the damage he was doing to other people. Remember, he ripped off his entire family, Jesse. He ripped off his sons. He ripped off his brother, his brother-in-law's his closest friends, he ripped off Elie Wiesel, survivor of the Holocaust and a revered figure in the literary and community. If you were capable of feeling any shame for having done that, you could argue he's not a sociopath, but he didn't. He ripped off all of those people. So without, apparently without remorse and without ever saying, gee, I shouldn't be doing this. I should not be doing this. So That's why I think he probably falls on the side of the sociopath. I don't think either of us can answer why, being a sociopath, he became a criminal sociopath. It's probably, as you suggested, a matrix of circumstances, pressures, market forces that left him believing that the only way to preserve his self-image, his ego, his Status as a wizard of Wall Street was to cheat and to rip off people he was supposed to love and take care of. So that's what he did.
1: In the movie, it seemed like it focused on one of the later chapters in your book where it really focuses on, and not really so much Bernie Madoff as much as it does his wife, Ruth, and then his two kids. And the media just attacked Ruth, I mean, basically ruined the rest of their family. We mentioned before, one of his sons killed himself, the other died of cancer. Ruth basically had no friends. They weren't allowed to have any contact with each other. Did you have input in that? Like, was that something that you focused on?
0: I was a consultant to the HBO production under my contract with them. And I did work closely with all of the script writers who worked on the script for that film. It was important to me, if the film's going to have the name of my book on it, it was important to me that the film not distort the deeply researched conclusions of my book. So I had that relationship with the screenwriters and the director, Barry Levinson, obviously, I, I had no veto power. If they decided to portray Ruth as the mastermind of the whole Ponzi scheme, all I could have done is say, well, you know, I'm going to have to go public with that and complain. I'm going to have to disown this movie. That was the only weapon I had, but it was enough. It was a good weapon. I must say, I never had any complaints. I had never had any conflict with the team at HBO and at Tribeca, it was De Niro's production company who was involved in the co-producing the film. We were all on the same page. We all wanted it to be as accurate as we could possibly make it. So I, I did have a great deal of input. I'm honored to say, and I still have to pinch myself to say that it's real. I'm honored to say that both Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert De Niro did talk with me at great length. As they shaped their characterizations, and to to see what I thought about the way they planned to handle certain scenes and so forth, so the focus on the family I think is justified in this regard. As I said earlier, the idea of white collar crime being kind of a bloodless, um, you know, numbers on paper, paper pushing kind of bean counter crime is belied by the Madoff story. We know that there were tens of thousands of individual investors who were destroyed. The Madoff family, Ruth, Mark, and Andrew, are kind of surrogates for them. You could see in their lives the ghastly damage that this crime inflicted by focusing on how Madoff destroyed, as he did, he destroyed his own family. His brother did go to prison, sentenced to 10 years for basically, and this is me, I'm not a lawyer, but this is me describing the case, basically criminal negligence. He was the chief compliance officer of Bernie's firm. He had responsibilities under the securities laws that the FDR got passed, and he should have caught this fraud and didn't. So, Bernie's brother is dishonored and sent to prison. His wife is a pariah. No one will rent her apartment. No one will even let her go to their beauty salon. She is absolutely ostracized. His son's careers are absolutely blighted. They have no prospect of ever working on Wall Street. Again, they would always be under suspicion. And Bernie never expected that to happen. He was utterly blindsided by the damage that his family incurred because of his crime. He had never expected it. So that aspect of the story, to me, was a microcosm of the human damage that every Ponzi scheme inflicts, the way it destroys trust, the way it uses trust to destroy other people. All a Ponzi schemer needs is Everybody's trust in a bank account and he can run a Ponzi scheme, but he's got to have people's trust. And so the Ponzi schemer takes this beautiful thing, the human capacity to trust one another. And scientists say we're hardwired to do that. It's been an evolutionary advantage. It's helped us become the species that dominates the planet. The fact that we trust each other, we order things on the Internet. We send our money off through the mail, trusting that it will be okay when someone comes along and uses that trust, cultivates our trust and then uses it to destroy our lives. It's profoundly disturbing at a deeply human level. And I think that's why stories about Ponzi schemes resonate so much with us and why the story of this Ponzi scheme, which brought together all of those elements on a massive scale, still resonates with us so much today. No one can betray you more deeply than someone you totally trust. The Madoff story is that horrifying fable. No one wants to live in a world without trust. It's just hard to even contemplate what that would be. The Mad Max future of humanity, a world without trust. No modern commerce without trust but everyone needs to be aware that the people you trust have power over you that no one else has. You need to be careful about how you rely on those trusted relationships. And that really is the moral of the Madoff story. Trust carefully. Understand that we tend to trust too much. And when we trust, we become blind to the red flags that, yes, Ruth and Andrew and Mark probably should have seen, Peter Manoff should have seen the red flags, but they didn't because they trusted Bernie so much.
1: Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have any final thoughts? And also, where can people get a hold of you? Where can people find your new book? And I also would recommend The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust. Let us know the new title because I certainly want to read your new book as well since I really en- enjoyed The Wizard of Lies.
0: Great. Thank you, Jesse. Yes, people can find information about The Wizard of Lies, both the book and the movie, on my website, which is diana dianabhenricus.com. My Twitter feed also is posted there so they can keep track of me there. The new book which will be out in September, but it's available on Amazon for pre-order right now, It's called Taming the Street, The Old Guard, The New Deal, and FDR's Fight to Regulate American Capitalism. I'm excited about it. It's a story I've wanted to tell for a long time, and I think it will deepen people's understanding of the heritage of financial regulation that we have in this country. The last word I would like to add, though, is Ponzi schemes aren't over what I would love your listeners to take away if nothing else from this conversation is a new Ponzi scheme surfaces every five to six days they won't be as big as Bernie's they won't be as global as Bernie's but they will be as damaging to the people caught up in them so people need to educate themselves about Ponzi schemes and they need to realize that they are an ongoing threat to investors which is why i'm so glad that you're looking back on the madoff case because five days from now there's going to be a new Ponzi scheme surfacing in the news and its victims are sitting there right now thinking they're making lots of money and trusting the guy they're investing with
1: we've seen that with crypto and i think we're going to see hundreds of more i mean ftx gemini celsius is just the the tip of the iceberg there
0: well i'm I love the crypto stories. I'm sorry for the crypto investors, but I love the crypto stories because let me just point out, crypto is an unregulated market. The crypto market today is what the entire American stock market looked like in the 1920s. So if that's the kind of Wild West you want, if that's the kind of might makes right sort of, you know, hide the, uh, hide the, uh, the P and the. Three card Monty game. If that's what you like, you would have loved the 1920s. But what we saw in the 1920s led to the regulations of the New Deal that made those markets safer. Crypto is not regulated, it is an unregulated market today, just like the stock market of Wall Street was in the 1920s. And proceed with that knowledge. You're on your own, Buster. If you're in crypto, you don't have the regulators having your back. Now, I think that's going to change. One of the interesting conversations that I hope to have as my book comes out is, what are the lessons from the 1930s that need to be applied to the crypto market today? One of the things that I have objected to from the very beginning as crypto began to emerge is the way crypto outfits were allowed to hijack the vocabulary of regulated finance. FTX called itself an exchange. Under law in the United States, an exchange is regulated. The second law that Roosevelt got passed was called the Securities and Exchange Act. It regulates exchanges. So you're not an exchange if you're not regulated. And someone should have stepped in. Yes, regulators. Someone should have stepped in and said, excuse me, you can't use that word in your name. You can't call yourself an exchange because that has legal meaning. And you can't use it. But we didn't. People talked about making deposits, making withdrawals from these crypto organizations as if they were banks. No, 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 no. They're not banks. Banks are regulated. These guys weren't. We're in for a very interesting conversation about the applications of those good old 1930s rules to the 21st century crypto market.
1: Yeah, and speaking of FTX, there's a reason that they were located in the Bahamas and not the U.S. And it's interesting to note that both of his parents are tax attorneys at Stanford, so he probably knew exactly what he was doing.
0: He did have a U.S. domiciled subsidiary. I've followed the bankruptcy documents in that case quite closely. Among the allegations were that they improperly moved assets between the unregulated Bahama-based, all-over-the-world uh, mishmash of paper entities and shell companies and that U.S., FTX U.S., which was a U.S.-regulated entity. I think the lesson there was if you're going to operate something like that, don't have a single toehold in the regulated U.S. market because it brings you under U.S. regulation. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But certainly, we are headed for a very serious conversation about whether to regulate crypto. And there's an interesting argument that to be had there: whether you should just say, "Look, it's not regulated, guys. You know, proceed at your own risk. If you want to be stupid and lose all your money, we're not going to come in and help you. The cavalry is not riding to the rescue. When you invest in crypto, you're investing in an unregulated area, and we're—it's not on our watch." or to try to regulate it, which as I said earlier, is going to require a global commitment because these organ- these businesses operate globally. The US. can't single-handedly regulate the crypto industry, either do the very, very, very hard work of building a competent global regulatory regime for crypto, or maybe just hang out the flag, you know, abandon hope all ye who enter here because this is not regulated.
1: It's definitely going to be a conundrum. I was watching hearings where they don't even know if it's going to be a commodity or a security. They're even having to debate that. And thank you so much for joining us today, Diane. Well,
0: I'm jealous of you there in beautiful Puerto Rico, which I think is one of the loveliest spots on the planet. So appreciate your inviting me to have this conversation. It's an important conversation, Jesse, and I credit you for seeing that and for bringing it to your listeners attention thanks for having me that is it for this episode of el podcast and once again if you guys aren't subscribed yet please consider subscribing and find us on rumble spotify and apple Podcasts as well we thank you all dearly for watching and listening i will see you on the next episode